WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and you're tuned in to the Living Writers Show. My guest today is poet Sean Norton, and we'll be discussing, among other things, his first book of poems, Bad with Faces. Welcome. Thank you. It's really great to have you here today. Well, let's um, let's take a little journey, and let's start with the book. If you'll, um, we'll just hop right in, and if you'll read for us um, the poem Puckered and Shook on Lower Hate Street, then we'll get on the way. Okay, um, this is a uh, slightly long poem, so... Puckered and shook on lower hate. The room we fell into was the one in which we slept on one mattress, four of us. One guy wore his army boots to bed, and for that matter all his clothes, so he could get up at five and walk out the door to work. He worked as we all did at a health food store whose produce was often no different than the Safeways across the street, except a dollar more a bunch or pound. My boss's name was Edward. He was an alcoholic but fair, and that he had hired me with blue hair. No references, a nervous stutter. He soon proved an oaf. He would say, be back in a minute, then call three hours later. A Knob Hill bar surrounded him like a warm bath. It slurred his words. He said, if my wife calls, tell her I went to the bank, but it would be 8 p.m. on a Sunday. When he never showed, I'd get out the padlock, chains, and close up. Back at home, I found the boy who slept in his clothes, reeling in a corner. When I propped him up, he said that he had eaten off a plate on which Jim, our fried hippie friend, had cut up some acid. We stayed up most of the night, almost staring at each other. He was looking blankly at the cream-colored wall. I was looking out the window at a single street light. I'd look away for 15 minutes and then look back and ask him a question. What is going on outside? Then I'd look to see. At around three, someone else came home and looked in and asked what happened. I dosed him, I said, laced his peanut butter sandwich. For a second, the dose kid's face puckered and shook, and he seemed to almost believe what I'd said and admitted later that's what caused him to lunge and hug me. His depth perception must have been off, because he launched into me with the, without thought of the wall, its meticulous cream, and his head smashed into it. I was so surprised that I almost didn't notice the blood from my nose that covered my shirt from where his shoulder cut across my face as he performed his albatross flight. Enough, the newcomer in the hall said, and went to shave his head. Jim came in and told me to snort some vitamin E, or was it Daniel, another fried hippie, just in from Marin? It wasn't punk Daniel, the other Dan. He was always out till dawn. Back in 1990, the Gulf War was starting up or being planned, so each morning after the guy got up to go to work, punk Daniel would rush in and from the living room start playing Praise God and Pass the Ammunition, making us get up to thrash about the room. These were our calisthenics. Later, when I moved up north, I heard from a friend about some guy called Punk Dan because he was present at every show. A month or two later, he drowned at night in a small Oregon lake when he fell out of a boat. I didn't ever stop to think there may have been a service. It seemed less absurd to think Dan was at the bottom of a forest lake or bog 
nightly becoming petrified than to imagine a man had to strip off his boots and kilt and slip him transmogrified into a suit for parishioners. For who? It was these small details that we had no idea of in regards to each other, who each belonged to. One day right after I heard we were in the same town again, I had found him at an outdoor concert dancing on top of a trash can. He was bone thin and had a permanent shake to him, but he remembered me fine and wanted to be remembered to everyone else. Where they were, I had no guess. That was also fine. He wanted to talk about the day he was followed in for morning exercises by the house cat, who promptly began spilling kittens in a wavy line on the floor. We had done our best to guide her into the closet and to lay her down on a t-shirt. Someone had searched the hall, finding a few more, and we put their moist bodies with the others against her tender belly. We all got home around the same time that night and stood before the closet without a door and otherwise empty space and quietly looked down on the image of the mother and children. She had eaten a few of them during the day. We agreed, we agreed though, that she was probably done, and as a matter of course, decided not to prevent the others from sleeping on. Wonderful. Thank you. Tom? Now, the reason I asked you to read that first one is that there there seems to be a tension in the book between this um, notion of sleeping on and then journey. Um, there's literal journey. The book takes place in many different places, and within poems, there are different places. In, in that poem, there's uh, the Lower Haight in San Francisco, and then Oregon, and then the promise of, of more. And I wonder, right. you mentioned in your biography, little biographical blurb on the back of the book, that after um, several false starts at different schools, you ended up in, at the University of Oregon. I'm wondering if you could talk about how this notion of journey plays into your work and the poems in this book. Um, specifically, well, uh, first I can talk about that poem um, in terms of, I guess, um, waywardness and journey and sort of the implications of that. Um, the subject of that, it did borrow somewhat from from being in Oregon and um, a pit stop in San Francisco. I actually lived in San Francisco for a little over a year um, in a different and no less precarious living situation to what's described um, in the poem, and the living situation in the poem was actually a friend of mine, and so when I went to visit him, um, sort of starting off a trek of leaving one of those schools that you mentioned um, and ending up in San Francisco, I sort of stayed at his house for a couple of weeks, and a lot of the material from the poem um, comes from those two weeks, although I portrayed it as as, as if I was one of the members of the house. Um, so I think in writing about um, journeying or sort of waywardness, it's somewhat easier for me to distance myself from my own facts of, of that process um, and try to catch some of the emotional reality of that, um, but using the facts of other people's lives, um, if they're similar enough that I can sort of co-op them and, and make them mine. Um, and uh, but, but that's, I guess, specifically with that poem. Um, in general, throughout the book, I guess, journeying... Um, it's interesting um, to me to uh, sort of take these leaps of probability in a lot of the poems um, and then sort of um, come back to some sort of groundedness. And I guess in the Puckard and Chick poem, the groundedness is just in sort of the, the, um, the ennui or sadness of there being no one else sort of watching out for these punk guys. 
except for um, themselves. And the only mother that sort of seems to approach um, a reality in the poem is this one that sort of consumes her young. Um, so there's, you know, there's obviously dangers to sort of um, dangerous things out there in the waters, I guess, is, is part of the precariousness of any type of journeying. Um, and what's your relationship to this to this precariousness? Um, you mentioned in um, some interview, an interview I read, I believe it was in the Ann Arbor News, um, that there's this sort of spiraling out, journeying out, and then grounding with the domestic or the home. Um, how do this home where that that's described in the poem there is 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 a bit of a nutty home. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, where the only mother of resented consumes her young. So, how do you then find in the work and the places to ground the 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 precariousness of the of the journey? Where do I try to ground the the, the poems? Um, I guess. Uh, well, I guess practically in 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 practical terms in the writing of the poems, I always remember something that Robert Haas said about um, sort of fabricating a type of chaos. It was I think right after he was um, named poet laureate, and there was something on PBS, and you saw him at home sort of chopping up celery and being very domestic with his wife and his kids. Um, and and had that sort of groundedness, and so he was able to sort of keep the chaos going in his poems, or sort of that, I guess, again, that term journeying of sorts in the poems. Um, but in this, the topic of each individual poem, I guess I always try to ground um, things in the idea that um, there's always some place to stand. There's never really a, a, a total loss of ground beneath one's feet, and so that that sort of knowing that um, allows me to think, at least for the speakers in my poems, that they can take wild liberties of thought or um, imagination, of course, um, and still always know that there's always some, something to land on, <laughs> um, albeit sometimes really humorously or or even precariously in that regard. But and you use humor a lot in the books to to do that. Um, that that shows up quite a bit. I'm wondering in your own journey as a poet, mm-hmm. um, so this theme of journey plays out in the book, but the theme of journey sort of plays out in your own life as well. And I'm wondering how you have sort of come to this moment of your first book. It's a very exciting moment. Um, the book came out last spring. Right, yeah, last March. Um, well, uh, I guess there, there's a couple different ways to answer that. Um, I, I, I have so many... Um, Backlog of uh, so many years of sort of backlogging poems, and um, I was always a horrible. This might be a different um, topic altogether, but I was always a horrible reviser of poems, and so I think that probably lended itself to this notion of um, a wayward journey of sorts, because I just have tons of material that I never went back and sort of compiled um, in any um, sensible fashion. And in fact, when I was going through the MFA program here at Michigan. Um, Alice Fulton paid me the compliment that in 18 years of teaching, I gave her the most stuff to read. Um, <laughs> so you can interpret that however you wish. But um, so, uh, you know, it, so for me, it was somewhat difficult to actually think of things in terms of a book. Um, I think when I started writing, I even had much, I mean, you know, going back to my teenage years, or early on in college, I had a difficult time even thinking of um, things uh, um, specifically as poems. I had this somewhat um, fanciful notion that one was um, sort of a fiction writer, poet, and philosopher, and you know there was a sort of 
I don't know, even know where I got it from, but this sort of notion that, that that's what one would set out to do. And so I, you know, was an 18 year old trying to think of when would I write my book of aphorisms, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. So um, I don't I don't know if I actually had a realistic notion of what a book was, a book of poems um, could be or was until relatively recently. So it was it was um, a very fruitful project for me in many ways to sort of think, well, I've got to call some of these poems into the book. And I've got to get rid get rid of a ton that don't fit into like a general theme that I can imagine as a book, I guess. Well, great. Well, we're going to take a short musical break, and then we'll be right back to talk a little bit more about some of those things. <laughs> show on WCBN FM. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Sean Norton, and we're discussing his first book of poems, Bad with Faces, just out last March. And um, and in fact, you're going to be reading tonight. At I am, yeah. Reading at Shaman Drum at 7 p.m. Wonderful. That's Shaman Drum on State Street. If you haven't been there, check it out this evening. And they have readings many nights during the week, so... Wonderful. Well, you mentioned Alice Fulton um, as one of your teachers. You said you gave her the most stuff she's ever received in 18 years of teaching, which I think is just fabulous. And um, I found on the web an interview, or rather a bit that she wrote about the the final discussion of your MFA thesis. Oh, okay. It was from an old blog, no? I think... um is this from Story Magazine from Italy, I think? there was. Th- mm, this is a blog called Dumb Foundry. I okay, well, maybe I'll jump in and, and, yeah, please do. and let you know what it was. Do. Uh, oh, okay. Um, I think what this is, is is that she was given the project as were hundreds of, of different writers and artists around the world from this Italian magazine. Um, this Italian magazine gave them the project of, at a certain specific time of day, on this one specific day, everybody had to record what was going on for that 10 minutes. Um, oh, and I gotcha. Think that's, that yeah, that's in fact what this is because it's six, 600 seconds or something like that yeah. comes up. Yeah, 600 seconds, 10 minutes um, at Cafe Zola. You right, know, so that, about. that just happened to correspond with our last thesis meeting, so I was lucky to, to sneak into that same journal that I think like Thurston Moore and some of my other heroes have appeared in. So, yeah, I was happy with that. Good company to keep. Well, in this, you ask her a question um, about style, and you ask her, um, well, she reports that you do anyway, <laughs> in, in this highly stylized yeah, I can little just, 10 I, minutes, I'll disown yeah. it if it's not. Disown smart, it if yeah. it's not what you, what you wanted. But um, your question was, must style develop naturally, or must poets strive to create it? Um, and I wonder if you would read for us, speaking of Italy, um, the poem it, toward the beginning of your book called The Silent Poem, and then let's talk a little bit about the ways in which you approach style as you were thinking about all of this material and how to form it into one book, and then specifically how you think about style when you're forming individual poems. Okay, yeah, sure. Silent Poem. Near Assisi, a sign reads, Qui morte San Francesco. 
The problem with translation is the awkwardness of silence, what cannot be recovered. An expression does not always press towards speech in an ungainly way, the silenzio to hush the museum crowds. The Italians advertise accordi e disaccordi, Allen's sweet and lowdown all around Rome. There is no wait to get into a show. In Roma, I eat gelati beside a table of old nuns in white habits. I photograph four police horses down a dark alley in a corner where plaster is ornamentally gummed about a fresco of virgin and child. At last, I feel I have nothing to say. Actually, it's been a sneaking suspicion for a long time, but here it is prominent. There is nothing poor about the Capella Transitorio, that place near Assisi where St. Francis died. Its smallness alone astounds. And there is a bit of rope. It wants for nothing, not even to get back to the saint. Nobody knows this more than me, says God. Assisi the unbridled, says God. The Spanish steps decline, full of seated tourist girls with their purses between their feet, whose summary pastel and earth tones remind one quickly of the vacant house nearby, adding Keats and Shelley to the pilgrimage, before the thunder breaks, the silence over the Colosseum. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's talk about what's going on. That's a very different sort of poem than the poem that you read to start the show. Um, Will you speak a little bit about how you, does the poem demand the form, or are you working to wrangle it into? That's interesting. (laughs) Now I'm fully put on the spot after asking Alice Fulton that question five years ago. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, yeah, it strikes me that this this poem needs this form. I think precisely because um, the speaker in the poem is confused in a way that's different than the speaker in the poem. I think the speaker in the poem, um, Puckard and Chuck, um, feels very um, sure of his knowledge of the world in a way that I think that this person doesn't. Um, and so, but I, I'd say probably in both poems, there's there's something that the, each speaker is contending with is a certain sense of awe. And, and the, the one that's more lyrical, the silent poem, um, that awe somewhat um, of of sort of the mysteries of life and sort of traveling at all, I guess, and sort of being a spectator and traveling and also being a spectator of things um, and of oneself in a way that um, one didn't expect um, sort of determines the sort of broken up um, nature of that poem. Um, and, well, let me take a look at it again. Um, I think... I was happy um, to end this poem <laughs> with with sort of a breaking of the silence that's sort of determining um, how this person is speaking. Now, I mean, often in lyrical poetry, silence is the thing, much like in music, so one is always contending against it um, and finding ways to hopefully break it enough to, to achieve the poem. Um, and I think, you know, there's somewhat of a giving up of that in this poem, and the person... The speaker rather says, you know, I have nothing to say, and I suspected that um, in so many words. Um, but then nature sort of lends itself in to sort of break the silence at the end of the poem. So, you know, um, we're sort of in cahoots with nature um, as poets. Um, so I let I let nature fill in the gaps and win the day, I guess, in that one. Um, so that determined the end. But um, and I think part of the part of the confusion for the speaker and also the awe of the speaker sort of determine the style of that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and made sure that it was different than the other one. Yeah. And the there, there's something interesting going on in there. You, you you spoke about the silence and the ways in which nature sort of intrudes to overcome. And there's but you, and you've set up this really interesting tension. You've called it the silent poem, and then you've broken it through. Whereas it, the other poem was much prosier. Right, Is that right. a fair thing to, to oh, say? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's barely hanging on as a poem, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean, then? Um, well, I think I, I, I wanted that one to sort of feel a lot more like a, a narrative or an essay. And so I tried to... And there was many times when I would pull it out of the manuscript... Um, because it didn't seem like a poem on, in some sort of traditional sense, um, but I squeezed it back in. I found I found ways to, <laughs> I found ways to break enough lines in enough of a um, jagged way, I guess, to justify at least to myself that it was a poem. And and what's what was sort of telling you that was that this um, kind of you, this style developing naturally, and you've said this naturally is a poem, or was was there a real desire thematically or? for some other reason that you wanted to wrangle this longer prosier poem, the one that you read at the beginning, Puckered and Shook on Laura right, Haight, right. into the manuscript. What was what was going on there? Um, well, one, one of the things, I guess, an overlap in, in themes of the book would be um, sort of re, um, humorously and, and sometimes reverently and sometimes completely irre- irreverently reinvestigating some, like, notions of the spiritual life and that sort of thing. Um, and so... I was always really happy by the factual, uh, you know, the truly factual moment of the Pucker and Chick poem of this person, Punk Dan, who did um, actually pass away in Oregon and died mysteriously in a lake and whatnot, but in San Francisco sort of spilling in each morning to this room um, and, and blaring praise God and pass the ammunition during the beginning of the Gulf War, um, and how that was, in some regard, its, its own, um, I guess, in some ways, the whole apartment setting was a type of retreat from life, so it had a type of spiritual aspect of it for me. Um, but then also it had this um, sort of odd, you know, non-monastic in any way, but sort of monastic like, community of these like punk guys. So for me, that sort of fit into this this one of the themes running through the book, which is just, um, um, you know, investigating uh, a personal notion of the spiritual life, I guess. Do you see, you mentioned a retreat from life at, happens in that poem and that there's this sort of spiritual aspect of that. Do you then sort of think of the spiritual life as a retreat from life, the factual? Um, no, I don't No, I don't see it as a, a retreat from the factual. Um, I don't know. I think some, somewhere, I think it was when I was like mm, probably dropping out from the first college that you mentioned, but um, so around when I was like 18 or so, and I think I got this idea um, from some book on Hindu philosophy. But... Um, just a notion that um, the other sort of spheres or what might be called, I guess, in yoga philosophy, like an astral world or something like that, is just a hair's breadth beyond, like, the physical world. And so, um, and with practice, I guess you could call it, the physical world could somewhat, like, fall away and reveal that other one. And that, um, so, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> if you see the retreat from... Oh, yeah, so, yeah, so then, so I guess... The notion of retreating from what is factual um, is conditioned by the idea that what is factual might be um, only a bit of a veil. Right. So I, I guess I don't see it too dichotom in too much of a dichotomy of like retreating too much from life to be spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think it's always fun to retreat from life to sort of get your grounding again and then come back and, and face the factual world. Um, and that the factual world itself is, is a bit of a, a phony. So... 
that has its you know that has its pluses. Let's look then at um, to sort of follow that thread. Let's look at your poem, um, Renunciation. I believe it is Renunciation on Retreat, um, and and sort of we'll we'll then go on from there. Sure. Um, so there's a few poems that I think originally when I was trying to form the manuscript, a lot of poems, um, to go along with what I was just talking about, a lot of poems had the title Something on Retreat or Someone on Retreat. Yeah. And now there's only three. There's um, a Jess on Retreat, a Jennifer on Retreat, and now Renunciation on Retreat. Um, so taking the sort of like the subject of renouncing the world and putting that in focus, I guess. Um, renunciation on Retreat. I put everything in a sack and carried it down to the lake. The bowl that had been used for cereal tossed in first. Then the copy of Gide's The Immoralist. The purple corduroys and the long underwear shirt float the most. Occasionally a white mouth will lift out of the gray water and try to bite the edge of something. The first writing journal sinks no problem. Horticulture and the flowers of Paraguay, written on the bank of a bank receipt offered up, go down. 80s punk and 60s free jazz say up yours in the modal waves. CDs bob like rainbow lures broken from a line. A spoon carries the murky sky down to the sand and pries it in past the closed-mouthed rocks. Knowing how to free oneself is nothing. It's wanting it that is hard. The gray waters keep bubbling with a breath of increase. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's talk a little bit about the ways in which renunciation at the retreat. So there, there's the, there's this notion of the getting rid of the material world and putting it into focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned that several of the retreat poems in your your stash of loads of retreat poems have fallen away. How did you decide to keep that one for this manuscript and the other the other two that make it in about the retreat? What is it about the focusing in those that help focus this manuscript and make bad with faces? Um, what you wanted it to be. Right. Um, that's a good question. Um, one that maybe I haven't fully considered, so this is neat. Um, I think uh, why these ones stayed is because maybe um, it goes along with uh, why I ended up um, keeping the title of the book the way it is. Um, in fact, I had a lot of trouble trying to pick a title for the book. If At first it was going to be something about retreat pro- poems, and then... Um, I sort of moved away from that, and um, the title actually I owe to my friend Margaret Dean, who was out at a dinner with um, her husband Chris, and our friend Stefan and myself, and um, and I was begging everyone to, to give me a title for the book, um, and everyone gave up, and then after a while she, she offered that one up. So, And then I thought, well, how can I make this work with these poems? And then I started getting rid of a lot of poems to maybe start to fit the title a little better. And why these three stayed is, I think, because um, the speakers in these three poems um, are having a little bit more issue with the surface of life than the other poems had. The other ones maybe were a little bit too serene. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was kind of playing off the idea, as I did with a lot of the poems that end up in the book, that um, that the speakers were having uh, trouble with, with the surface of life or the face of life. That, that was sort of their way, that they were bad with faces, not necessarily just that they couldn't recognize someone they knew from across a room. Um, and so that's why that one stayed. I kind of really enjoyed that um, 
that the speaker of renunciation and retreat was just doing this sort of possibly frivolous, possibly not frivolous act of chucking everything they owned <laughs> into this sort of um, unforgiving gray lake. Um, and, you know, to tie that back into, I guess, just having fun writing poems in general um, and also the journeying theme, I guess. Um, so it was fun because all the objects and the, um, or most of the objects, um, it's not always all the objects in a poem but were real, but some of the, most of the objects in the po- poem um, I lost once when, like, a backpack was stolen of mine. So it was fun to occupy that speaker for the duration of the poem. And recover the... Yeah, and, and be the one to sort of chuck them into the lake versus having things being sort of taken from you, um, which is, you know, always fun with poetry. There's loss, and then you get to turn it into gain. Into gain. Wonderful. Well, we're going to take a short break. It is the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writer Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Sean Norton. We're talking about his first book, Bad With Faces. We'll be right back. show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest again today is poet Sean Norton. We're talking about his book, Bad with Faces. And before the break, we were talking about the ways in which um, poetry can allow you to um, sort of take control and, and retrieve what's taken away and um, and then do with it what you will, um, which is an interesting way to think about some of the poems in book in light of the fact that there is a very strong thread of um, spiritual journey and theology. And I wonder if you could talk, and I imagine at the heart, and I'd like to ask what the heart is, at the heart of that spiritual journey is a very different sort of premise where the control isn't the individuals, but the control is elsewhere. And if you'd sort of talk about the ways in which those two tensions work together, um, the sort of taking charge and... And what? What's the other half? <laughs> right, right, right. I, yeah, I guess, I guess an interesting um, notion to me always um, in life, and I guess poetically, well, this would have to be the same thing, um, is just that, you know, it's much more interesting to um, be aware of what you're not in control of and speak from that place than um, try to um, sort of fancifully or... or um, or poetically, in some ways, try to control a space that that you don't. It was always much more of an interesting enterprise for me to um, to sort of have my the speakers of my poems um, be facing a fact of loss of control, and also um, somehow I'm not exactly sure how that works always, but somehow um, being a part of that thing that that does or that is in control. So there is um, there's sort of a desire to sort of blend into a larger sense of nature or a larger sense of the spiritual um, at the same time of um, sort of relinquishing um, control, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
And how do you see those two things playing out? Because, like, for example, in right. in the poem you just read, um, "Renunciation on Retreat," um, the speaker in that poem is is willingly and willfully giving right. away right, right. what was actually taken away. Um, and it's in this context that that is sort of um, renunciation is you know something altogether different from even even that. Right, right. How do you think about those things together um, in terms of as as an as a poet writing poems and just in the world? How do you think people will read or take away from this? What's the the message, if you will, um, if there if if I can be so crass as to ask right, for right. one. Uh-huh. I don't know. I what? Um, hmm. I I don't know what message uh, people take away. I guess um, the, each, uh, many of the speakers in the poems seem to be like honestly struggling with the notion of um, like a personal uh, appreciation of awe, whether it be in like nature or the spiritual or whatnot, um, and um, that that has an ardent desire to be separate from any sort of maybe conventional notion of that, or at least I know in my own, in my own life, there's sort of a desire to be apart from whatever, um, sort of traditional or dogmatic, um, notions of spirituality that I may have, um, um, taken on <laughs> right. or, or, or been party to or listened to or something like that as a youth. So, um, I guess that uh, if there's a, if there's a message, there might be just something that resonates versus like a message itself. I'd say if something resonates from that, it's just that um, uh, that there is some sort of spiritual reality um, that that sometimes haunts the speakers in the poems, mm-hmm. um, but it's not one that needs to be like overly prescribed. I guess I've always been a fan of, um, you know, you just sort of gravitate towards whatever your heart is gravitating towards already. Um, and then you can, you know, formalize that as much as you want. And, um, like I, I personally, um, you know, uh, practice like a type of yoga for spiritual discipline, a type of meditation yoga. Um, so, um, some of the poems for me become metaphors for that. And I don't know if those, that would be metaphors for that for anyone else, um, as a reader, but certainly I hope it, it, um, it ends up being a metaphor for some aspect of, um, like a, a a spiritual realm or something like that. Although that sounds so vague in well, the way but yeah. No, it's it's not it's not so vague. I guess the reason I was asking is because there is not a. a I don't feel that there's any didactic element to the book at all. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't um, know if I'm capable of didactic <laughs> element. <laughs> well, and but, and yeah. I and and yet on the the ways in which the book is blurbed and the ways right, in which right. people talk about the book, um, there's always a mention of theology. There's always a mention right, of spirituality right, right. of the divine. Right. I mean, there there are a lot of words that are buzzwords for um, some sort of spiritual journey or quest right, or message. Yeah, right. um, and and so I, w- I was wondering whether that was in fact something that, that was an intention overt or w- rather it's the ways in which the people reading your work are receiving it. Because it's very obviously there, it, it, but it doesn't right. feel didactic. I th- yeah, I think it's more of a, a, an intent, just a general intention in my life. And so, uh, and I have a very hard time, um, and I guess I've stopped seeing this as a handicap in any way, but I've, I, I have a very hard time sort of separating the arts from 
um, like a spiritual discipline of sorts, um, like, you know, various cultures. It just That's just accepted. Well, it's a very strange thing we do in right. this country to say poetry is one thing and dance is another and right, spirituality right. is another. Right, right. Um, m- most places I've been outside the country and even parts of this country, there is a much more holistic approach to this is a practice and it includes these elements. And right, yeah. here we have poetry. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and yeah, um, I mean, I know, you know, I'm a huge fan of like Tagore, um, and some of the Indian poets. And so, um, you know, when I think of Tagore and sort of his, his sort of, uh, all of his students, um, regarding song and regarding, uh, poetry and regarding music as a spiritual discipline that's going to, um, lend to them knowledge or, um, some sort of even more importantly experience of, um, of, you know, higher, um, um, aspect of themselves, you know? So, and that's, uh, I mean, that's one of the great advantages to poetry is that, you know, it can clearly not be about anything in the same way the story is. Um, and yet you can fully experience it. Um, and it can sort of put you in, um, I guess a sanctioned space for experiencing whatever the poet's introducing at that moment. Um, so, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, I wonder if you would read one more poem for us today. Um, the Return of the Mountain Lion uh, would be lovely. Sure, yeah, no problem. So, Return of the Mountain Lion. Yeah, tell us a little if you want to introduce it or, or launch right in, whichever you feel. No, I can, yeah, I can, maybe I should introduce this one. Um, I think, you know, for this one, again, this is probably a little bit closer to the silent poem in the sense of it's, um, I guess I've been calling it um, during the interview, jaggedness of sorts or lyrical quality of um, of, of shifts um, and probabilities. Um, I think for this one, I was really enjoying um, shifting the tone more than anything else. More, I, had, I let that sort of determine the line breaks and sort of where the poem went next. Um, so I'll read it and then maybe we can talk about it somewhere. Return of the Mountain Lion. I've not looked long enough at the green pea tarnished with boiled egg slither to see how to laugh. Because my words failed it, no one could say beauty. It was a horrible law, not a law really. I can admit that. Don't you watch the game on the corner of 54th and TV? Every Thursday there's another. We call it pain. Every window, that's an exaggeration. Just one read, leave your pain. A glass door, and I opened it for others, and read the slogan aloud, knowingly and pointedly, and walked through myself, but nothing changed. Converted to change, all those dollar bills and dollar coins, now hope in a paper cup. I walked through myself for miles until 54th and TV, and realized I'd gone too far and needed to head back the dusty road to the family slaughterhouse. Thank you. You're welcome. There's some really lovely stuff going on in there with respect to the sound, sonically, the way the way you're playing with um, the sounds in, in those lines. Right, yeah. um, that is, um, it feels a little different from, although there are some similar things with respect to the jaggedness that you mentioned in the, the poem, um, the silent poem. Right. There's some different sonic things going on in here, and you mentioned tone. What do you mean? <laughs> um, I, gu- I guess um, there's something about the tone of that poem that seems like the, the speaker's intentionally being contrarian. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in in just what they're announcing because because of the absurdity of um, things. I love the corner. I, I guess one of the reasons I kept working on the poem is because I couldn't stop um, being selfishly in love with the corner of 54th and TV. Yes, um, <laughs> I can see why. As, as a locale. <laughs> um, and I had I'd worked on the poem for a while. It's a relatively small poem, but I worked on it for a good long time. Um, and um, and once it had the title that, again, this is something that was titled by a friend of mine who said he really liked the poem, but he would only really, really like it if it was called Return of the Mountain Lion, which seemed to somehow fit for him and then it fit for me. Maybe I'm just I'm stealing ideas from friends, but um, but that's fine, I guess. And um, and I guess to loop back to even to the, the beginning of our conversation, um, like this notion of journeying and this, this image of, uh, it was at a friend's wedding um, and the reception was... Um, at a, at a place in Seattle and on the door, it literally, you know, there's some decal that says leave your pain. And it seemed like a very funny, um, and beautiful, um, thing that I sort of carried with me for a long time until it had its place in this poem. Great. Well, we are about out of time. And so it's lovely that you looped right back to the media yeah. conversation. Welcome, you did yeah. all my work yeah. for me. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show, Sean. Thank you very much. You are reading tonight? Tonight at 7 p.m. at Shaman Drum. At Shaman Drum on yeah. State Street. Yep, and um, all new poems, so nothing that I read. Ah, <laughs> okay, so, yeah. so come on out. And um, my guest next week will be former U.S. Poet Laureate Billy Collins. Hey, hey. So please tune in same time next week, and stay tuned now. The Sports Report is next. This has been The Living Writer Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest has been Sean Norton. We've been talking about his book, Bad with Faces. Thanks for joining us. Every night